Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do a great job, and you can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We've got a terrific show lined up for you, including Mark Schulman. He is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. As usual, we'll be talking about current global events. We'll visit with Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll talk about the hazards of propaganda and economic textbooks. And Phil Kirpin, the president of American Commitment, a locked-out kids from school, uh, create quite a problem. We'll talk about why. It is uh, May the 10th, and on this day in 1869, the presidents of the Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railroads met in Promontory, uh, Utah, to drive in a ceremonial last spike into the rail line that connect the two railroads. This made transcontinental railroad travel possible for the first time in U.S. history. No longer would western-bound travelers need to be taking the long and dangerous journey by wagon train. Since at least 1832, both eastern and frontier statesmen realized a need to connect the two coasts. It was not until 1853, though, that Congress appropriated funds to survey several routes for the transcontinental railroad. The actual building of the railroad would have to wait even longer as north-south tensions prevented Congress from reaching an agreement on where the line would begin. One year into the Civil War, Republican-controlled Congress passed the Pacific Railroad Act in 1862. It guaranteed public land grants and loans to the two railroads to choose to build the transcontinental line, the Union Pacific and Central Pacific. With these in hand, the railroads began to work in 1866 from Omaha and Sacramento, forging a northern route across the country. In their eagerness for land, the two lines <laughs> built right past one another, and the final meeting place had to be renegotiated. Harsh winters, staggering summer heat, and the lawless rubble and tumble conditions of newly settled western towns made conditions for the Pacific Union laborers very difficult. Mainly Civil War veterans of Irish descent made it miserable. The overwhelming immigrant Chinese workforce of the Central Pacific Railroad also had its fair share of problems, including brutal 12-hour workdays laying tracks over the Sierra and Nevada mountains. They also received lower wages than their white counterparts. On more than one occasion, when whole crews would be lost to avalanches or mishaps with explosives would leave several dead. For all the adversity they suffered, the Union Pacific and Central Pacific workers were able to finish the railroad, laying nearly 2,000 miles of track by 1869, ahead of schedule and under budget. Journeys that had taken months by wagon train or weeks by boat now took only days. Their work was an immediate impact. The years following the construction of the railway were years of rapid growth and expansion for the United States, due in large part to the speed and the ease of travel that railroad provided. Amazing. The final spike on this day in uh, 1869. So each year from May 6th to May 12th, we celebrate National Nurses Week. Last year, 2020, was designated as the year of the nurse in honor of the 200th anniversary of the birth of the founder of the modern nursing, uh, Florence Nightingale. Coincidentally, uh, nurses who were thrust into the spotlight as the coronavirus panic spread across the country and the world, people everywhere took notice of their bravery, heroism, and dedication to caring for serving others. I thought it would be appropriate on this show to acknowledge nurses across the globe, and especially here in the United States of America. So thank you for your service. Certainly you had to demonstrate bravery uh, and a call above and beyond the call of duty. Uh, well done. Friday evening, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Goetz uh, held a MAGA rally, MAGA rally at the Villages as the first installment of their American First tour. We watched Linda and I watched it. Hundreds filled the auditorium and hundreds were outside. Both did a great job and proof that uh, the movement, the MAGA movement, is alive and well. thought they did a great job. If you had a chance to, well, there'll be other ones coming up, I'm sure, but uh, they are both outstanding speakers and certainly uh, celebrated the whole MAGA movement. 
Well, the economy added far fewer jobs than expected in April, just 266,000 jobs, and the unemployment rate rose slightly by to 6.1%, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported on Friday. The jobs numbers indicate that the pandemic recovery is not proceeding nearly as fast as was hoped. Forecasters had anticipated that the economy would add nearly 1 million non-farm payroll jobs and the unemployment rate would drop from 6% to 5.8%. However, Unemployment in restaurants and bars surged in April, the Labor Department reported, uh, even as uh, overall employment growth disappointed. The gains in leisure, hospitality, the sector most dependent on the retreat of the pandemic, complicate the assessment of what slowed jobs throughout the the month, especially regarding that possibility that unemployment benefits are preventing employers from filling the posts. In April, employment in leisure, hospitality increased by 331,000 jobs. Now think about that. As panic-related restrictions continue to ease in, this means that the rest of the economy lost, not gained, lost 65,000 jobs in April. The U.S. Chambers of Commerce called for Congress to end this $300 boost in unemployment uh, to encourage, that's the aid, of course, for unemployment, to encourage workers to return to work in response to Friday's weak employment report. Biden took to the podium on Friday to put today's jobs report in perspective. (laughs) To put some spin on it, he went to say that this month's jobs numbers show that we're right on track. Right, Joe. He said the jobs numbers show even more how essential his American Rescue Plan, or the conservatives are being uh, being called it the American Bankruptcy Plan, really is. Biden blamed the Trump administration for the current ap- economic turmoil. Biden said, when we came in, we were inherited a year of profound economic crisis and mismanagement on the virus. All right, Joe. Who do, nobody believes that, Joe. Come on. By the way, Press uh, Secretary Jen Psaki, Psaki revealed Thursday that she will probably leave her current role at the White House in about a year. She cited her young children as a reason for leaving. It made me wonder if uh, this announcement was she saying, hey, I'm well-connected and I'm uh, considering offers. <laughs> Give me a call. Uh, within a year, it could be like tomorrow, depending on what kind of offer she gets. I've I just wonder about the motivation of doing that. Well, Dominion is refusing to comply with the state Senate subpoena. That's Arizona State. And it's hiding the second password for their machines. Dominion was in charge of the Maricopa County election, and now they are refusing to cooperate with the subpoena. The Maricopa County Election Board claimed this week they do not have the administrative access to the county's voting machines. If that's the case, then the county did not own the election process that they ceded to their external vendor. System administrators are now individuals who have access to the systems at the highest levels. Well, so the uh, those in you know, Maricopa County didn't have it, so the individuals are able to perform all sorts of duties. They're able to perform most of the functions and changes in a system. They have complete and total control and can even delete or alter system logs. The fact that the county does not have the system administrators who have Uh, Administrative access to the Dominion voting machines is a big concern. By allowing Dominion to have the administrative access only, the county had basically turned over the system to the Dominion voting machine people. There is no IT control here because it's been ceded to Dominion. And now Dominion won't cooperate and uh, kind of blockading this whole process. Quite frankly, I think just counting the votes and uh, getting this uh, audit completed without the machines will lead to a hundred thousand dollar a hundred thousand vote uh, lead for president trump just my opinion representative liz cheney's husband uh her his law firm represents several chinese communist party linked clients including firms tied to the regime's military and employs uh, former party officials to undergird its massive china practice Uh, Philip Perry, the husband of the House Republican Conference chair, who looks set to be ousted over her outlandish criticisms of her own party and its leaders, serves as a partner at Latham & Watkins, the firm which has offices in Shanghai and Beijing, has worked with companies labeled as tools of the Chinese Communist Party by the U.S. State Department and People's Liberation Army. Uh, The uh, discovery uh, uh, as an expose by the National Pulse into Douglas Emhoff, husband of Kamala Harris, and second gentleman of the United States. He previously worked for uh, DLA Piper, another large global law practice with Chinese communist clients. That's, re- that's reassuring, isn't it? DLA Piper boasts of long-established and embedded Chinese 
desks in both the U.S. and uh, Europe to assist with their China-focused consulting, prompting questions about how the firm's potential proximity to the White House could be leveraged by DLA Piper, exploited by the Chinese Communist Party, or represent a financial conflict of interest for the vice president. So there you have it. So what's the motivation for uh, what people are doing? I think it may have something to do with these uh, communist Chinese ties. I'm talking about the party. So uh, again, (laughs) this is just amazing that... uh, Cheney and her husband well, it may, may have some influence on her thoughts and practices as well as uh, Kamala Harris and her husband. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning Naples, longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also, by Life in Naples magazine, be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Visit lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman. He's the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative. You can find out more by visiting thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now, we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. It's great for kids of all ages, including you and I. Uh, HistoryCentral.com. Also, Mark is an author. He's written several uh, books, mainly on past presidents. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So we're going to talk about current global events and uh There's turmoil in East Jerusalem. Why don't we start there? Absolutely, Bob. It's been going on for a couple of weeks and gotten particularly bad in the last two or three days. Um, Let's start with the fact that this is the month of Ramadan for the Muslims, and uh, basically they fast during the day and feast at night, and it's always a period of increased tensions. And this all began, believe it or not, thanks to TikTok. A bunch of young um, Arab uh, youth in East Jerusalem 
uh, started randomly attacking Jews who were walking near the old city and then would film it on TikTok and try to get more views because of the what they did. So, huh. and so this is this is where it began, and then the Israeli police responded, and then it's gone back and forth, getting a little worse all the time, um, and then. Um, it's gotten. It's tied into two other factors. Number one, there is an area in East Jerusalem. It's called Sheikh Jarrah, which prior to 1948, um, a fair of uh, some of the property. I don't say fair was owned by Jewish families, and those families have sort of demanded the property back, and the courts have sided with them in terms of the property. And so they said, okay, we own the property. They want the people who've been living there for 70 years to pay them some rent. And the people living there for 70 years, we've been living here 70 years, we've never had to pay rent. And yeah. so now they're trying to throw them out of, the, out of their homes. At the moment, it's, been, it's in the Supreme Court, and it's not clear. The Supreme Court is delaying discussing it for a month so the tensions will, come, will calm down. And then this morning, um, well, uh, yesterday and then today, uh, there were some um, demonstrations and rioting from the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is a temple mount, throwing down stones at the Jewish worshippers on the western wall, and then the Israeli police entered the mosque, and um, it got rather violent, let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so always the question, you know, Jerusalem is a very incendiary point for for all religions. It's a point where everyone, you know, no one seems to be, to agree on. As a story that I was told recently, there is a... Um, a um, ladder at the entrance uh, to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in, in East Jerusalem, in the old city, and it has been sitting in the same place for 50 years because the the question of whether that part of the of the um, church that needs to be fixed is owned by the Roman Catholics or the Greek Orthodox, and they can't agree, so the latter hasn't moved, even though it's rusting and everything else for 50 years now. So Unbelievable. So Jerusalem I, is a place of insanity in some ways. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's if, as I recall, four sectors in Jerusalem, one of them being Arab. Is East Jerusalem the uh, Arab section? Okay, so East Jerusalem generally um, is the Arab section. In other words, Jerusalem was divided during the 1948 war between East and West Jerusalem. East Jerusalem generally is the Arab section. Now, the old city of Jerusalem is divided into four quarters. Uh-huh. It's divided into the Armenian, the Jewish, the Muslim, and the Christian quarters. Um, so that's a separate sort of subdivision, shall we say. Gotcha. But generally speaking, East Jerusalem is mostly Arab, um, although there's sections of East Jerusalem that have Jewish uh, populations in them as well at this point. So interesting. So... Uh, uh there apparently, and by the way, I want to remind our listeners that you are in Tel Aviv and have been for the last, I'm guessing, six months at this point. Uh, right. So, yeah. so uh, let's. Apparently, there's a new Israeli government being formed. Well, there, there's a very likelihood. In other words, after the last elections, um, the divisions was, were pretty fifty-fifty between those who refused to, to sit in the government with Netanyahu and those who support Netanyahu. Um, and it, the way it works in the Israeli system is that the president gives the person who's most likely to be able to form a government uh, the first cut at forming the government, then Netanyahu could not get 61 Knesset members to support him. And so now the opposition now has the has the baton, and it's looking likely that they'll be able to put together a government this week. There's no guarantee, but it's looking more and more likely. It's going to be a strange government because it's going to include the right-wing um, Naftali Bennett, um, who's going to be actually the prime minister, even though his party only has like seven out of the 120 seats in the parliament, uh, his 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 uh, support was quite necessary, and the way to get it was to make him prime minister. So the the prime goal of everybody is to remove Netanyahu from office. Um, just to put this into perspective, he is in the middle of a corruption trial, being uh, on trial for bribery and other related uh, misconduct in office, and the trial is ongoing at the moment. So there are a lot of people who have been saying that you can't be on trial for bribery while you were in office and st- stay in office in the meantime. Yeah, so, so interesting. This sounds a little bit like Groundhog Day, though. We've been down this track before. <laughs> We've been down this track many times. This, is a, this was the fourth election. I've definitely been down the track many times. This is the closest it's come to the opposition being able to form a government. Part of the reason they're able to do it is they're getting support from the Israeli Arab parties and the left was always afraid to get support from the Israeli Arab parties because they were going to be deemed traitors by the Israeli right. 
But Netanyahu tried to get that same support, and what happened was he sort of created his own little box because he also brought into government a very, very far right wing, into the parliament by negotiating a situation where they got votes, a very, very far right wing party as well. And the very, very far right wing party says, we're not going into any government that's supported by an Arab party on the outside. So Netanyahu failed, but by doing that, he sort of set the groundwork. It's very hard now, even though some of the members of his government are lying, saying, well, we never negotiated with this um, with this party, which is called the Ram Party. Um, the reality is everyone knows they did, and so once the Likud right-wing parties negotiated with them to be part of the government, it's pretty hard to to claim the other side shouldn't be doing it, and the other side is not really a left-wing government. It includes two small parties, seven each, that they'll be defined left-wing, um, two center parties, which have the most votes, and two parties that would be, con- or three parties that define themselves as right-wing, just anti-Netanyahu. So it's really a centrist government if it gets formed. That is so interesting. Uh, before we move to the next segment, though, could you comment on uh, COVID in Israel? What? Well, what's COVID in Israel? There is none. Uh, <laughs> effectively, there's none. I mean, there there was a case yesterday of a couple of kids in a, in a, in a school that someone brought it from overseas and didn't maintain quarantine when he came back. Um, but the reality is we're down to 40, 50 cases a day. Oh, great. I think we're down to 40 people in the, who are hospitalized in, in serious condition. Keep in mind that we were at 10,000 cases a day, and we had as many as 1,300 people in critical condition in the hospitals as of three months ago. Yeah. The vaccines work. We're at 70-some-odd percent of the population has now been vaccinated. We have herd immunity in the country. And um, there are no restrictions to, you know, they st- people are still wearing masks indoors, but not outdoors. Hmm. But other than that, there are no restrictions at all at this point in place, other than issues with relating to returning from traveling from abroad because of the fear, the fear of variations coming. So Israel is the perfect case to show that if you vaccinate enough of the population, you eliminate COVID, and that's what's happened. It well, doesn't have you any know, hosts I, but to go into. In juxtaposition of that, and I'm not challenging what you're saying, but uh, there was a, and I've forgotten the name of the country now, uh, a small country, uh, but uh, had... Uh, Seychelles. Yes, and had the, the most, Islands, yes. had the most uh, pe- well, greatest percentage of its population vaccinated, fully vaccinated, and uh, they had another big outbreak. So Right, but remember what Seychelles has. Seychelles is a resort, and they, they were allowing people to come in from all over the world because uh, without the people, there's no economy. Okay. Israel hasn't really allowed any tourists in. Okay, that, that explains that. Mark Schulman, again, we're going to uh, like to uh, take a little break right now. We're going to come back in just a moment. Can you stick with us? My pleasure. Okay, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, 
It's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thank you so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Phil Kirpin, the president of American Commitment. We'll be talking about what's happening with lockouts of kids at school here in the United States, still in the United States. Right now, we continue the conversation with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. So uh, let's talk about, we talked about COVID in Israel. What's happening in India? My goodness, it's uh, tragic. It's tragic. It's totally out of control. They just have not been able to to bring it under control. Uh, people are dying. There's a lack of oxygen. They're trying to make enough oxygen, and the c- countries all over the world are sending help to India. But you're talking about huge numbers, and you know the, the numbers that are being reported, the numbers that are actually taking place seem to be out of whack, too. It's probably much higher than what's being reported, both in terms of deaths and in terms of huh. uh, people who are getting sick. And um, this is what happens when a virus, you know, runs it runs out of control, especially when it seems to be a variant that seems to be more lethal. And uh, so, you know, this is very serious. Um, you know, the United States had its period where it was really, really bad in the United States. The vaccines have have brought it to us, not totally under control, but to a large extent under control. Yeah. But in this world today, we need to really worry about things like this going forward as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe one day we'll find out where, how this, what the origins of this virus. Yeah, that were, was but. that's a question. It's just a mystery to me how this can happen in India. It's crowded. One point three is it one point three billion people? I've forgotten now. But uh, right, yep, one point three billion is correct. So a lot of folks, and uh, probably in, in clo- uh, close proximity. This is not necessarily a destination for travel, but uh, uh, what you know, it'd be a nice, to, it'd be helpful to understand the cause, the root cause of uh, this outbreak. Well, what seems to be the root cause of the outbreak is that um, the Indians sort of thought that they had it under control. They were not getting vaccinated because people thought they didn't need to. And then the government went ahead and ran an election campaign with tens and tens of thousands of people on top of each other, Mm. combining that with a bunch of religious events with other tens and tens of thousands of people Ah. that came from different parts of of the country, all... Uh, spread together, and this created this super spreader event. Yeah, and taking the fact that the variant in India seems to be more um, virulent in terms of infections. Uh-huh. So you combine all those things, and things just spiral out of control. You know, once you st- once you lose control, it's very hard to re. You know, it's sort of it's like a wildfire. Yeah. that burns its way through the population, and yeah. that seems to be the case at this moment. Yeah. So our people are dying. Are they? Uh, the hospitals are overflowing. Uh, it, is is this strain? Hospitals are overflowing, and the hospitals themselves don't have oxygen enough to provide for the patients that are there. I mean, uh, that's more than anything else that people get is is oxygen to help them breathe when they have COVID, and if without that, yeah, uh, they can just die, and that's what's happening. Unbelievable. And it's. And the fear is now that this may happen to a bunch of to a group of other uh, under underdeveloped countries sure. that don't have the hospital systems and everything else in order to deal, and we may never ever really hear how bad it got in some of these places. Yeah. Uh, so, Mark, let's move to uh, Afghanistan. So we continue to have bombings. We continue to have attacks. Uh, clearly, the Taliban are going to make life as difficult as possible, and we are down to the same problem we've discussed before. Um, we can't seem to beat them if we stay, at least not without the sort of commitment that we're certainly not willing to make. And if we go, there's a really high chance that um, the Taliban will gain control. So it's, you know, it's a sad situation. You know, I, I don't have any good solutions. Yeah. Um, the same sad situation when President Trump and the same with President uh, Biden making similar decisions, just Biden a little bit slower. 
You know, the, uh, the solution, quite frankly, the solution is the Afghanistan people have to decide it's important enough to resist the Taliban and stand up for liberty, just like the, <laughs> the folks did back in the, in, the, uh, in the revolution, the American Revolution. It takes a few brave people to say, you know, no mas. The answer is yes, and there are plenty of people who are doing that. But remember when you have an unconventional situation where one side has no problem killing women and children, yeah. bombing, scaring the daylights out of everybody, so it's not safe to go anywhere. And it, it, makes, for, um, it makes it very difficult to defend against that. Let's yeah, put it that way. Absolutely. Yeah, although, so it's, not, it's easy to say let's defend against it, but you know, when your daughter or your son, whoever it might be, can't go outside because they can't go to school because the school bus might be blown up. And it's very hard to defend against that. You know, if you go back, look at Israel 15 years ago with, a, with an excellent army and everything else like that, but when there was an intifada, when there were these attacks on buses, they couldn't stop them. No, I understand, Mark. I, I guess I still say that what that does, though, it, make, it makes the need to stand up obvious. The question is who's going to have the uh, resolved uh, to do it, and it, uh, it, that's, got, it's, that's how it's going to happen. Quite frankly. It's not going to happen because of U.S. intervention. No, absolutely not. But it's, you know, one thing is very important, though, that we don't pull the South Vietnam. What do I mean by that? We're pulling our troops out. Yeah. We need to continue to support the government, support the army, give them a fighting chance. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. may, they may or may not succeed, but we need to give them a fighting chance. Well, there's no simple answers for sure. As uh, 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 Tom Sowell said, uh, there's only trade-offs. So right. let's, let's move to uh, Iran. Right, so it seems that as of right now, an agreement has not been reached between the United States and the Iranians relating to the um, returning to the JCOPA agreement. Um, they've been dancing around it, but the Biden administration, as much as it says it wants to go into the agreement, has made it clear that for them, the agreement is only the first step. The Iranians have made it clear they have no intention of doing anything beyond the agreement, and they have no intention of extending the agreement which sort of eliminates some of the incentives. So it's not at all clear if there any agreement is going to be reached or not reached. Um, it's, you know, maximum pressure has not worked. The, the Iranian, as much as we'd like to think they're about to collapse, they haven't collapsed. They're yeah. not even close to collapsing, especially with some support from both Russia and China. Yeah. So we'll and that's really which makes it more difficult. Yeah, so just kind of wait and see. So I, I don't want to let you go until we uh, talk about the U.S. pipeline cyber attack. I mean, this is a big, big deal, and it's important. It's a global issue because uh, I think it's a picture or maybe a shot of what could be happening in the future. Oh, absolutely. Look, we need to realize something. We have a real problem. Almost anything can be hacked if someone is willing to put the the effort into it. So. Mm -hmm. You know, the guy sitting in the garage with his computer, he can get into some simple systems and he can be defended against. Yeah. But it's almost impossible to defend against a foreign government with unlimited resources and unlimited time. Mm -hmm. If the item is connected to the Internet in any which way, someone will find a way of hacking into it and doing some damage. Yeah. So we need to be very careful and understand the trade-offs. We need to, of course, put a lot more money and effort into cyber defense. But um, beyond that, we need to understand that there is no simple solution. The more we integrate our lives into the Internet, the more we let the Alexas and Ceres and everything else, assistance, take over our lives, the more we let, you know, we have connected systems so that it's easy to pay, easy to do, etc., the greater the chances are that something's going to get hacked, and um, it's a it's a danger that exists. And yeah, you know, it's like to me, I hate the world of cyber because it's a big tax. It is, and you know, the, the, this is going to cut off half of the supply of uh, fuel. And we're talking about oil and gas and so forth, and for the entire East Coast. So, uh, and I'm not not sure how they're going to resolve it. But I, when they talk about infrastructure repair, and we talk about uh, re renewing the infrastructure, I would hope. That would include defense against cyber attacks like this. Absolutely, but understand something. It's almost impossible. In other words, it's, impos it's, it's possible to do good, good defense against me or you, not that you and I are hackers, but you know what I mean. In other words, yeah. the guy sitting on the bed in his room, one can defend against without a problem. If one wants to try to defend against a nation state, it's very, very, very difficult. Okay, Mark. And 
that that's really the reality. We need to keep that in mind. All right, we're going to leave it there, but I always appreciate your commentary on what's happening around the globe. Great way to start Monday morning. Mark Schulman, again, the founder. Have a great week. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, Mark Schulman, again, the publisher, final founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I hope you'll check it out, HistoryCentral.com. Okay, coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed. Uh, Larry is the uh, Professor Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. Listen to the Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. I hope you check out Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. Uh, you can get the app and uh, visit choicesocial.us, the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Phil Kirpin, the president of American Commitment. Right now, we have with us Larry Reed. He's the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Tell us about the a terrific organization, the Foundation for Economic ed- Education. Okay. We are headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, but our work goes uh, all over the country and beyond. We focus on young people of high school and college age, and we endeavor to inspire and educate them in ideas of individual liberty, free markets, constitutional government, and personal character. We do that through our website, which is fee. FEE.org, many uh, in-person events around the country, videos, uh, daily content added to the website, and uh, so much more. Absolutely. A great, great website, but uh, a great organization. Uh, anybody that, uh, young people that can be touched by the Foundation for Economic Education, attend the events, whatever it might be, just end up having stronger and better characters. I just highly recommend it. If you have somebody in your life that's high school or college age, introduce them to FEE.org. Larry, you wrote a column about the hazards of propaganda in economic textbooks, and this is a big, big deal. I mean, if kids aren't learning the truth about economics and other, you know, uh, 1619 Project and all those types of things, where it's really becoming propaganda. Maybe you can tell us about it. Yes, I'd be happy to. This is very important because if a people fail to understand economics, they can be led down all sorts of destructive paths. In fact, I quote an economist at the beginning of the article uh, who says that economic illiteracy is dangerous. I can ride on a roller coaster 
without understanding centrifugal force. Mm -hmm. Physics can protect me, uh, whether I believe it or not, but if I ignore basic economics, I could go broke. And if a country ignores basic economics, it could go bankrupt. So that's how important economic understanding is. And as you look at textbooks being used both at the uh, high school and college level these days, there is a lot of room for improvement. You have some authors suggesting that uh, uh, government uh, rarely fails in what it does. The private sector, however, uh, frequently does and has to be cleaned up by the government, when in fact just the opposite uh, could be argued pretty strongly is the actual case. Um, and uh, over and over and over again, you find the old myths of economic history being repeated, such as the Great Depression was caused by the free market and government saved us and FDR's New Deal worked when in fact it didn't it kept the depression going for an extra seven years yeah you know so, larry i can i can recall sitting in my i think it was eighth grade civics classes and learning about keynesian economics and how it was really this uh pedal and uh brake uh accelerator and brake theory that the, the government could keep things uh, on on a level keel <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> They can't keep their own budget on a level keel, but yeah. somehow they're going to do that to the entire economy. Yeah, it's really crazy. But, there, I mean, there's just a number of issues, uh, monetary policy, just a number of things, poverty, that uh, where there are myths out there that uh, people buy into, and quite frankly, it influences how they vote and think. Yeah, it's really uh, uh, something that parents need to pay close attention to. They ought to be looking at the textbooks their kids are learning from and and uh, raising questions with their teachers uh, or if it's a college text they ought to encourage the student to uh, raise questions in class because this is uh, so much uh, of the time it isn't just error it's actually propaganda it's yeah. uh, designed uh, and it's in the textbook to serve a political agenda which invariably is ever more government concentration of power redistribution of wealth central planning of the uh, nation's economy. That's the end objective of so much of this propaganda. Yeah, you know, when I was also in uh, uh, high school, I learned that the Great Depression was uh, solved by FDR's policies. Uh, could you comment on that? Yeah, um, the Great Depression was brought on by uh, primarily the Federal Reserve, which was pursuing a very uh, expansionary monetary policy, creating a bubble in the 1920s. I mean, they were goosing the money supply for five years, uh, driving interest rates to artificial lows, creating that bubble, and then they reversed themselves dramatically and contracted the money supply, which burst the bubble beginning in 1929. But then the whole thing was made worse by further federal policy, uh, still under Herbert Hoover, in fact. In 1930, uh, with the economy in a recession, he pushed it over the edge into depression by passing a sky-high uh, tariff law that um, uh, imposed massive taxes on imports, which caused retaliation against American goods. Uh, and then it, two years later, he doubled the income tax. Then FDR came in, uh, took office in March of 1933, and his New Deal uh, was a massive expansion of government control and spending, we were uh, uh, throwing money at agriculture to pay for the destruction of crops and cattle. Uh, we were, um, or the federal government was fixing prices uh, across the board, raising taxes in the midst of a depression, making it uh, only worse. Uh, and yet it's often presented as if, uh, you know, free markets caused the depression and government rescued us. Yeah. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's absolutely the case. Not, not that the free market doesn't uh, have its own problems. I mean, they... Uh, this uh, uh, what was the uh, problem? Yeah, that's the right. The free markets do have occasional problems, but uh, they also tend to be self-correcting over time. Right. And it's not always true that when the government steps in to fix a problem, that it actually fixes it. Sometimes it just puts us in deeper into debt, and uh, the, the the problem, if it gets fixed, is not because of anything the government did. So it would be okay with me if we had textbooks uh, where kids could read about different economic f theories that failed <laughs> or, or have yeah. not worked. But, uh, you know, if, uh, focusing on free markets, the, uh, the pricing theory, uh, Hayek, I guess it was uh, the pricing uh, prices, theory of prices and so forth. You know, true 
uh, I'm going to call it liberal economics, is what the kids should be learning in school. Yeah, I think if uh, textbooks simply presented uh, fact, uh, if they want to inject a little opinion, at least uh, label it so, yeah. and if they want to share uh, different opinions, that's fine by me too. But to present, uh, as so many of them do, a, a one-sided approach loaded with opinion, opinion that, in my belief, is awfully uh, incorrect uh, in its prescriptions, I think that does the country a great disservice. Absolutely. Larry Reed, again, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, fee.org is the website. F-E-E.org is the website. Larry, always appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. And by the way, you know, th- this is such an important topic because it affects kids. They go in, they're just a... Uh, they're so receptive, and whatever we pour in is what they end up learning. And uh, we're, they're learning bad information about the origin of the country. They're learning bad information about race. And uh, we're learning bad information about economics. We need to correct all that. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Phil Kirpin. He is the president of America Mid- Commitment. He's also the uh, president of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Uh, we're going to do that more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, Downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thank you so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And I hope you'll visit the website, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Phil Kirpin, as I mentioned before the break. He's the president of American Commitment. He's also the president of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Bob. Great to be with you. Thank you, Phil. Uh, tell us about American Commitment. Well, we are a national free market advocacy group. We work really on all of the fiscal, economic, and regulatory issues, and we try to get people the facts and the, in- and the information they need to be better engaged citizens on the issues that are sort of on the margin, where a little bit more involvement from people can make the difference and tip the outcomes in a more free market direction. All the stuff is on AmericanCommitment.org. AmericanCommitment.org. Uh, is the website. And by the way, uh, we're going to talk a little bit here about the, what's happening with the lockdown of kids, keeping kids out of school. But before I do, I'd like to just a- acknowledge the Committee to Unleash Prosperity sending out a daily newsletter. It's just absolutely fantastic. Uh, maybe how, do, how can people access the website? Or get the, is there a website or the newsletter? Yeah, this is, the, uh, this is the other organization that I run, and this is the one I, I do with Steve Moore, 
uh, and Art Laffer and Steve Forbes, and it's called the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. They actually founded it a few years ago with um, Larry Kudlow, who left when he went into the Trump administration. We're still trying to get him to come back. He hasn't rejoined us yet. Um, But it's basically supply-side research and analysis. And uh, we do this daily newsletter that Steve Moore, John Fund, and I write uh, every day. And um, Steve always tells me, make it shorter, make it shorter, make it shorter. So we've been uh, trying to cut it down. We used to do maybe eight or ten items. Now we're usually doing six or seven. Uh And it's just sort of facts and information and things that we think people might find interesting. We sort of cover coronavirus, the economy, energy, uh, taxes, that kind of stuff. And it's totally free if people want to get it. We usually send it out around lunchtime. Uh, if people want that, it's committee to unleash prosperity.com. Committee to unleash prosperity.com. Go to the website. It's really terrific. And Phil, I, I would just suggest keep, keep it just like it is because it's really uh, it's a great read. And what I like about it is it addresses current news with uh, an economic, uh, you know, supply side uh, point of view. So, uh, again, the committee to unleash prosperity.com is the website. Uh, so, you wrote a column called said uh, not un- corrupt unions, not COVID, locked kids out of school. Fascinating uh, column. Tell us about it. Well, we had, a, um, we had a remarkable spectacle in February when everyone expected CDC to put out what they kept saying would be school opening guidance, and they would uh, essentially provide a roadmap for the schools that were still closed at that point, and uh, something like 30 or 40% were still closed at that point. Uh, to open, and then they put out this document that was the opposite. It actually called for schools in much of the country that had been open all year to close. And mm-hmm. so it was a school opening guidance document in name only that actually was a school closure guidance. And it was fairly clear at the time uh, that it was corrupt union influence that caused that to occur. And uh, then it became crystal clear because uh, Adam Laxalt's group actually obtained through a FOIA uh, emails about the back and forth with the teachers' union and the CDC, and, you know, uh, they asked the head of the teachers' union, Randy Weingarten, call the CDC director on her cell phone, please, and, uh, you know, they gave them specific language that they wanted to see, and just they had an astonishing level of input that, that reversed it from an opening document to a, to a closure document, and, of course, at the time, they were pushing for that massive spending bill, the $1.9 trillion with the $125 billion or so uh, for K-12 schools. Uh, 90% of it didn't spend out until 2023 or later, so it actually had no logical connection to their holding kids ransom now and refusing to open, but that was kind of part of a political strategy. And so what I did with this article is I sort of took this new information and I contextualized it with what we've seen over the previous year, uh, which was, uh, you know, similar corruption of the American Academy of Pediatrics, which back in last summer called for all schools to be open, then 10 days later reversed themselves in a joint statement with the teachers' union. Uh, I went over uh, some research that's been done that showed that there's a strong relationship between local teachers' union power and school closures, whereas there is no relationship between coronavirus burden and uh, school closures. And sort of, you know, I, I, based on everything we've seen over the last year, I mean, I think you have to conclude, Bob, that the school closures where they occurred, and especially where they persisted more than, you know, a few weeks or so, um, literally had nothing to do with health or safety or coronavirus. They mm-hmm. had an, everything to do uh, with union power and a union agenda and, you know, corruption of our uh, health uh, apparatus, both private and public, yeah. uh, by the teachers' union. Uh, just an astounding story. I just underscore the importance of this because many people look to the CDC for guidance, you know, the science and what we should do, and yet they've been corrupted by the relationship with the, these uh, public teachers' unions. And, uh, you know, it's just very disappointing to think a public health organization could be. And then it makes you wonder about the whole the guides that we're getting from the CDC on mass, uh, on, quite frankly, on vaccines and everything else. Yeah, I don't have a very high opinion of them. It's interesting. You know, I, I didn't think, you know, when, when Trump had uh, Robert Redfield in charge of the CDC, I was, like, pulling my hair out about how terrible he was, and he said masks are better than vaccines and all these bizarre things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to his credit, the one thing he always got right is he said schools should not close. And the, and the CDC under Trump never said schools should close. If you right. go back and look at their original guidance in spring of 2020, it's very balanced. And I think if you read it in context, it says the schools should all stay open. So it didn't happen because of CDC. 
Uh, it happened because of panic, uh, in spite of CDC. But you know, when I didn't think we could do worse than that guy, though, because uh, he did such a poor job of dispelling that panic, and he did such a poor job of communicating. And he's had that ridiculous congressional hearing where he said a mask is better than a vaccine. And I thought, Bob, all right, well, the one good thing about a Biden administration is the CDC director can't possibly be as bad as this guy. And boy, was I wrong. <laughs> our current one is a lot worse. I didn't think it was possible, but there it is. Chicken little. I mean, the sky is falling. <laughs> it was, it's just been unbelievable. And so, I mean, what is your solution? What do you think we can do about this situation? Well, you know, I think as a practical matter, we're not going to fix the CDC or, you know, the Biden administration uh, health apparatus. Uh, but I think that we can educate and mobilize people at the local level to disregard them. And I think that's really critical. And I think, you know, uh, my view is schools should be 100% normal at this point. Yeah. There should be no masks. There should be no distancing. There should be none of that because... Children are low risk. They've always been low risk. We know that substantially lower risk uh, even than influenza. And now every adult in the building who wants it can have the vaccine. And every parent back home who wants it can have the vaccine. And every grandparent who wants it can have the vaccine. And so everyone has sort of, uh, you know, chosen their path, chosen whether they want the risk of the virus or the risk of the vaccine. And people have made their decisions. And it's uh, outrageous that we would continue to impose any hardship on children at this point uh, for a virus that's just not a, a major threat to them. It's less of a threat to them than the drive to school is yeah. uh, from a risk standpoint. And so I really think we should be 100% normal. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see that immediately, but it, at, at least by the fall, uh, it should be totally 100% normal school. And I have no idea what the CDC will be saying, and it'll probably be something dumb, and it probably won't be normal. Uh, but I think the, the challenges on, you know, sort of parents and, and local, uh, you know, communities to say, you know what, we don't care what the CDC is doing. We're going to do the right thing uh, yeah. regardless. Well, we're fortunate to have a governor. Uh, governor DeSantis has made great decisions with regard to the economy and schools. Uh, on August 31st, they mandated that all schools, brick-and-mortar schools, must be open Public schools must be open in the state of Florida. And right single now, best thing your governor did. Yeah, and I think the long term, the school closures are going to end up being the single worst uh, decision that was made in terms of the long term impact, and and you really minimize that there. Yeah, we're we're just very fortunate here. And uh, so, uh, Phil, I ask you a personal question in a way, but where do you get your? If you can't trust the CDC, where do you get your information? Well, I really uh, use. I try to use only primary source information, and so I follow all of the raw data and statistics very, yeah. very closely on this stuff. And I also read all of the uh, literate, all the scientific literature, all of the studies, both published and unpublished, because there's been a tremendous amount of research that's been done uh, that's unpublished on the various preprint servers. And you know, I think. Um, you know, you, someone could say, oh, you're not a scientist, you're not a doctor, and, you know, that's true, but I am a person who's capable of reason, and I can synthesize this information, and I can look at the math, and I can look at the data and the statistics and draw inferences from that. And, you know, I trust my own judgment based on the raw data uh, better than I do what's coming out of these agencies, which is sad because they have more expertise than I do, uh, but I've just seen them be wrong about too many things yeah. uh, to not want to go to the raw data. Well, I share your point of view. Actually, our governor said the same thing. He actually looked at the data. He was following the data rather more than uh, the CDC and uh, to make these decisions. I just want to refer our listeners to uh, this is a daily caller, uh, caller column, dailycaller.com. It was published on May the 5th. And uh, again, it's called Corrupt Unions, Not COVID, not, uh, Locked Kids Out of School. Hope you check it out. It's really quite interesting. Phil, always appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. Have a great one. You as well. And by the way, I want to remind you that, uh, again, uh, the let's see if I want, I want to scroll down and find this. The name of the organization, Commitment uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity dot com is the website. Sign up for it. It's a great read, and it, it's uh, information, uh, a trickle down uh, theory uh, applying to what's happening in the country right now. So interesting. Uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity dot com. Well, that's a wrap here today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I learned a lot, and I hope you did as well. Tomorrow, we're going to visit with Kathleen Pasadoma, our state senator. Boo Mortensen will be joining us. We'll find out what's new with Boo. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government. 
And my wife, Linda, will be joining us as well. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>